This is Condopedia. Here we talk about everything related to condo law in Ontario, with hopefully some humor mixed in. Well, it's snowy afternoon, everyone. I hope everyone's somewhere safe and warm, cozy, maybe a nice cup of hot chocolate or a favorite latte of some sort in hand. Welcome to our first Condo Crunch of. 2023. We're very excited today to get started. A quick refresher, our condo crunches are our opportunity to try and share as much information as possible as we can in a 30 to 45 minute period. So that's what we call it the crunch. It's during your lunch hour, a little bit of crunch time, try and get everything done all in one fell swoop. We're very excited about today's session. We're going to talk about some of the key cases, interesting cases, fun cases that we have reviewed over the past uh, year during 2022. And at the end, maybe some highlights of what we're going to see coming up in 2023. So we're going to go ahead and get started with our first speaker in just a moment, Jessica. Jessica is going to take us through a case that deals with rules. What do you do if you have rules that you haven't been enforcing for a period of time? A neglected rule, if you want to call it that. So I'm going to turn over to Jess, but a quick reminder, we don't take questions during the condo crunch, but we will allow our chat attendees to send us any messages privately if there's any technical issues that we need to address. Otherwise, sit back and enjoy our cases. Jess, over to you. Thanks so much, Nancy. So I'm going to start us off today discussing a decision from the Condominium Authority Tribunal that came out last spring called Tino versus Essex Condominium Corporation number 28. It's an interesting case dealing with a no pets provision that had not been consistently enforced by the Condominium Corporation. The tribunal confirmed steps taken by the condo to resurrect the no pets provision, and it's a helpful example of how to resurrect a neglected provision where there has not been consistent enforcement in the past. As we know, we can run into trouble when there has not been consistent enforcement. So this gives us a nice roadmap of one way to get a condo back on track where there has been reliance by owners on the non-enforcement. In this case, the condo corporation's declaration had a provision prohibiting pets or other animals on the premises. There were some steps taken to alert owners of this restriction, such as signs on the entrance doors, and new owners were told about the provisions. But for over a 30-year period since the condo had been declared, the corporation had not been consistently enforcing the no pets provision against owners of cats. Other pets were prohibited, but cats were from time to time allowed to live in the units. The enforcement of the no pets provision as it related to cats was described as inconsistent and intermittent at best. In 2017, the board began receiving requests to also exempt dogs from the no pets provision on the grounds that cats had been permitted on the property. As a result of these requests, the condo decided that it needed to bring itself into compliance with its declaration and start enforcing its no pets provision in a uniform way. The board sought legal advice and ultimately enacted a rule, which among other things, established provisions relating to what it called legacy cats. The rule essentially required owners of cats already living in the building to register them with the corporation, the legacy cats would be permitted to live out their lives at the condo, but then could not be replaced when they died. The cat owners also had to agree to various restrictions on the legacy cats, including restricting them to their units. The intention of the condo was to phase out the legacy cats over time, while also balancing the rights of owners of cats that were already living on the premises. The corporation was brought to the tribunal by an owner who had purchased a unit in 2016 on the understanding that he was buying into a no pets building. He thought the rule was unreasonable and invalid because it conflicted with the provisions of the declaration. He also submitted that it was unreasonable since the corporation had not taken all reasonable steps to enforce the no pets provision in the declaration before enacting the rule. 
Ultimately, the owner wanted the corporation to enforce its no pets provision immediately. The tribunal ultimately found that the rule relating to legacy cats was valid and enforceable, and it was a reasonable attempt on the part of the corporation to bring itself into compliance with its declaration, while also balancing the rights of current cat owners who had relied on the historical non-enforcement of the no pets provision as it related to cats. The decision stressed the importance of the condo actually enforcing its rule by ensuring new cats were not brought onto the property, that the corporation was actually maintaining the registry of legacy cats, and conducting annual inspections to make sure there were no non-compliant animals in the units. With the passage of time, there was evidence that, a number, that the number of cats in the building was decreasing, so the rule was having its intended effect. In finding that the rule was valid and enforceable, the tribunal confirmed that while it was true that the corporation had an obligation to enforce its declaration, what they were dealing with here was what to do in circumstances where the condo had failed to meet that obligation. The tribunal found that the condo had acted reasonably in considering whether it could legally enforce its no pets provision against current owners of legacy cats, given its long history of non-enforcement. The transition rule acted as a bridge that would bring them into compliance with the no pets provision over time, and in this case, the tribunal found it was an, a reasonable solution. The tribunal also found that the corporation was entitled to deference in its choice of the rule as a way to bring itself into compliance over time. Now, this type of transitional rule won't necessarily make sense in every case or be appropriate depending on the type and history of noncompliance, but it's a helpful case that illustrates one way to resurrect this type of neglected provision. There has not been consistent enforcement in the past, and particularly where there has been reliance on owners of the non-enforcement. So for those reasons, I think it's a really interesting decision, and I wanted to talk about it today as one of our key cases of 2022. So back over to you, Nancy. Fantastic. Thank you, Jess. And it is a really important case because we do see this come up quite a bit. We've seen it historically over the past many, many years as service animals and pets, etc. become more and more of an interesting topic. And you're going to see a little bit later on that we talk a little bit more about pets and service animals. A quick reminder that we don't take any substantive questions today during our condo crunch. If you have a question about a technical issue, you're more than welcome to throw it in the chat. But we won't take any questions on substantive issues because we try and get as much information as possible set out in our half an hour to 45 minute period. Quick note, as we go through the cases, I will, however, put a link to the case in the chat. So you'll see I put our first link into the condocases.ca, which is the CCI publication prepared by our own Jim Davidson. And so Jessica's case that she spoke about, Tenno versus Essex, has been put into the chat for everyone to access as, uh, as may be desired. That leads us to our next speaker, Mitch. Mitch is going to talk to us about nuisances. So as you know, Section 117 of the Act was amended recently to deal with certain types of nuisances, and the cat's going to be here cases about various types of nuisances, and this might be one of the first ones that falls out of the typical nuisance category. Mitch, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you very much, Nancy. Given some of the snowy weather that we've been having in Ottawa and the rest of Ontario lately, I figured I would address an interesting case from 2022 that dealt with snow removal and nuisance. As some of you may be aware, and as Nancy mentioned, prohibited activities under Section 117 of the Condominium Act now include certain types of nuisances. These include noise, light, vibration, odors, smoke, and vapor. But what if an action that the condominium considers a nuisance does not fall within one of these six categories? Can the condominium bring these cases to the Condominium Authority Tribunal, aka the CAT, to ensure compliance? In situations like these, the condominium's governing documents may assist. 
Regulation 179-17 of the Condominium Act governs the jurisdiction of the CAT. It confirms that the CAT may adjudicate disputes related to provisions that prohibit, restrict, or otherwise govern any other nuisance, annoyance, or disruption. The case of Carlton Condominium Corporation number 132 versus Evans addressed this provision. I also note that the condominium corporation in this case was represented by David Liu from our office, so shout out to David. In this case, a dispute arose between an owner and the condominium corporation with respect to the location of a snow storage area. The condominium corporation's snow removal contractor had historically been storing snow on a common element area that was adjacent to the owner's unit. While the owner in this proceeding had not previously opposed the location of the snow storage area, he began expressing opposition to the snow storage area in early 2021. The owner argued that the resulting snowmelt was adversely affecting the foundation of his unit. To investigate the owner's concerns, the condominium corporation hired an engineer. The engineer did not find that the snow storage site was negatively affecting the owner's unit. Regardless, the owner continued his opposition. In the following winter, the owner parked his vehicle in a way that made it impossible for the condominium corporation's snow removal contractor to store snow in their usual snow storage area. This forced the snow removal contractor to store snow off-site, which resulted in increased costs to the corporation. The CAT determined that the owner's conduct constituted a breach of the condominium corporation's provisions respecting nuisance, specifically the condominium's declaration. At Article 4.1e of the condominium's declaration, it stated, no condition shall be permitted to exist and no activity shall be carried on in any unit or the common elements by an owner, family, or guests that would constitute a nuisance. In the absence of a specific definition of nuisance in the condominium corporation's declaration, the CAT considered the basic legal definition of nuisance, which is that the interference must be substantial and unreasonable. Additionally, the CAT found that the frequency and duration of the interference was a relevant factor in this matter, and that the interference could not be trivial in nature. On these bases, the CAT found that the owner's parking behavior was a breach of Article 4.1e of the Condominium Corporation's declaration. Now, this decision is important, and why I wanted to highlight it today is because it shows that where a nuisance does not fall within the six specific categories of nuisance prohibited by Section 117 of the Condominium Act, a condominium corporation's governing documents may still provide the condominium with the ability to obtain a CAT order to prohibit and enforce the inappropriate behavior. Finally, I note that the condominium corporation in this matter was able to recover some of the costs that it incurred, both their pre-CAT and in-CAT costs. And what appears to be important, and as was highlighted in this matter, is in order to recover costs, it's important for a condominium in their declaration to include a strong indemnification provision. Indemnification provisions, as some of you may know, are those that confirm a unit owner's responsibility for costs incurred by the condominium because of non-compliance of an owner or occupant of the unit. So with that, I think that's all for me for today. So I will send it back to you, Nancy. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mitch. And as you were saying, it's a really important consideration right now during all these snowy times. I can tell you I've had two emails over the past couple of days about unit owners parking erratically or sideways or right on the line. So it's a great case to flip out to your unit owners if anybody is saying, I'm going to park however I want. Great case to be referring to in that particular state. Thanks so much, Mitch. Okay, our next speaker today is going to be Christy, and I alluded earlier on that we're going to talk about some service animal cases, pets, service animals, really hot topics over the past two years. So Christy, tricky issue, over to you. Thank you. Yeah, definitely a tricky issue and one that generally 
is going to be sort of dealt with the specific facts of any case. Uh, but I did want to talk about an interesting case that came from the CAT towards the end of last year. It's the case of Waterloo North Condominium Corporation Number 70 and Sinyard, which was decided on November 16th. And in this case, the CAT ultimately found that a dog was not a service animal and required its removal. So slightly different from, we often see sort of a theme of accommodation and requirement for condominium corporations to keep, to allow owners to keep animals when an owner is making a claim that it's a service animal. So this is a little bit different. So I thought I would talk about the facts of this case, which may or may not be useful depending on the facts that you may be dealing with. But in this case, the condominium corporation sought an order for the removal of a dog for two reasons. So the dog in this case was a German shepherd dog, and it exceeded the weight limit that was stipulated in the condominium corporation's rules of 20 pounds. So dogs could not be any more than 20 pounds, and this dog was clearly over 20 pounds. In addition to this, the rules of this condominium corporation contained what I consider to be sort of standard nuisance provision when it comes to animals. So basically the rules said that if a pet is determined by the board to be a nuisance, the board can order the removal of the animal and must go. So in this case, the dog was actually aggressive. So in addition to being larger than what was permitted, it was aggressive. There was evidence that was presented to the cat from the condominium corporation that the dog had attacked other dogs within the building, that the dog jumped on people from behind, that it lunged at people. It was it barked aggressively at people and dogs. And this is all within a high rise building. And there was evidence, the condominium corporation had security camera evidence that the respondent was clearly unable to control the dog. So in these instances, when the dog was being aggressive, she was not able to control the dog. So not a great situation. However, when the condominium corporation told the owner that the dog must go, the owner asserted that the dog was needed to accommodate a disability. And to support her claim in that respect, she provided the corporation with a doctor's note as well as evidence that the dog had been registered as a Canadian therapy dog with the Assistance Dogs of America. The doctor's note specifically said, this patient is suffering from chronic medical conditions that require the use of a service dog, Daisy. She has been using Daisy since 2018 for these conditions. Ultimately, the cat in this case said that the doctor's note and the registration as a therapy dog was just not sufficient evidence of a disability that required a dog that exceeded the weight limit of 20 pounds. So in other words, the cat wasn't convinced that this unit owner or resident suffered from a disability that required this particular dog to accommodate that disability. So I want to read to you from the case because I think it's, it's interesting. So the cat said, medical evidence is not necessarily required to establish that a person has a disability, as it may be obvious. A person who requires a wheelchair, for example, should not need to produce medical evidence of a disability, although medical evidence may be necessary to establish the person's disability-related needs. However, in most cases, the person or organization that is being asked to accommodate a person because of a disability is entitled to have medical confirmation of the disability and entitled to ask for clarification if the initial information is not sufficient to establish that there are disability-related needs. Medical evidence will also generally be required to establish that the person with the disability has needs related to that disability which require accommodation. The medical evidence that is required does not necessarily have to identify a diagnosis and, ca and care must be taken when seeking clarification to respect the dignity of the person and their rights to privacy. 
In this case, so in talking about the particular case the cat was reviewing, in this case, the medical evidence provided by the respondent is very limited and vague. Chronic medical conditions may or may not include conditions that meet the definition of disability as defined by the code. So the cat was just not satisfied that the doctor's note was sufficient evidence that this individual suffered from a disability. And again, beyond that, the cat found that there's no, there was no evidence that this particular dog, this large aggressive dog was required to accommodate whatever that disability may have been. I think it's noteworthy that the dog owner in this case didn't ultimately participate in the cat hearing. So while she did submit some documentation in the hearing process, she didn't ultimately participate in the actual hearing, which was done in writing. So while there was some evidence before the cat from the owner, there wasn't, she didn't provide anything beyond the doctor's note or the confirmation that the dog was a registered therapy dog. I think it's interesting to note that because if the owner had participated in the process, had maybe made the doctor available for questioning or or for the corporation to ask for further information or further doctor's note, this might have gone differently depending on what that doctor had to say. So I think that that's, that's worth noting because that might distinguish this from other cases. I also wanted to say, and this is the part that I think is particularly interesting is that the cat said that even if the dog had been required for the purposes of accommodating a disability, so even if the cat was satisfied there was a disability and that the owner needed accommodation by allowing for a large dog that exceeded the weight restriction, the cat said that something would have to be done to address the dog's aggressive behavior. And interestingly, the cat said, I'm going to read again, but this is just a short passage. The available evidence indicates that an accommodation to allow the respondent to keep the dog could result in undue hardship for the condominium because of the risks to safety from the dog's aggressive behavior and the respondent's inability to control her dog. So even if the, the respondent or the dog owner required this dog, the cat felt that the dog presented a sufficient risk to others on the property and probably their dogs that the cat might still not have ordered the corporation to allow this dog to remain as a service dog because the cat may have found that that would be crossing that threshold into undue hardship. So as many people know who have dealt with any, any requests for service animals or accommodation, condominium corporations are required to accommodate disabilities up to the point of undue hardship. If the accommodation crosses into undue hardship on the condominium and its other residents, basically the condominium corporation would not be required to provide the accommodation. And so the cat recognizes that the aggressive nature of this dog may have placed that dog in that undue hardship category. So the corporation may not have been required to allow the owner to keep it. So I think that that's interesting as well, because if you are dealing with a similar situation where the dog that's required to accommodate the disability happens to be aggressive and pose a threat to others, that's going to be a factor and that may push the situation into that undue hardship category. So that's all I had to say about that case. Fantastic, Christine. I think we're seeing a little bit more of a trend in the cat to looking at the particular rules of the corporation and whether or not service animals, if they are found to be a necessary for accommodation, may still have to comply. So it's an interesting trend that we're seeing. We're also seeing some interesting overlap between what previously may have been a human rights jurisdiction, tribunal jurisdiction, and the cat. And we're not quite sure exactly where all those boundaries are, but we are going to hear from Victoria a little bit later. Oh, Vic Chrissy, go ahead. I just wanted to say on that because the cat actually talks about that in this case. And and so the cat was undertaking human rights code analysis. So they were taking on the jurisdiction of the human rights 
tribunal in this case for the purposes of undertaking that analysis and, and which they have the authority to do. So it's interesting you raise it just because they did mention that specifically. Yeah. And so this is an excellent topic that we're going to have to be watching for as we go forward. And Victoria is going to talk about that a little bit as well with respect to the Landlord-Tenant Tribunal a little bit later. So stay tuned for that. Before we get to that, though, we have Emily. Emily is, I think, one of our most common records cases at the CAT Council in our firm. She deals with a number of records cases. And so she's going to talk to us about the importance of timely responses. Emily, over to you. Thanks, Nancy. So the case that I'll be talking about today is SIDU versus PO Condominium Corporation number 426, which was released last year in October. So this is an interesting case as it really shows the strong messaging on the topic of condominium records that we're seeing coming from the CAT in its recent decisions. This case involved the unit owner, Mr. SIDU's application to the CAT for certain records of PCC 426. At the CAD application, Mr. Sidhu sought the following remedies at the tribunal hearing. He was seeking copies of the records requested, compensation for financial loss and huge mental stress and agony, legal costs, a penalty against PCC 426, as well as compensation for personal expenses. The tribunal reviewed a total of four records requests made by the owner in this case and found that all requested records had been provided either prior to or during the CAT process, with the exception of two items, board meeting minutes and the record of notices of leases required under Section 83 of the Condominium Act. On the issue of board meeting minutes, the corporation took the position that the records did not exist because PCC 426 simply did not maintain minutes for board meetings. The tribunal found that the failure to maintain such minutes was a significant breach of the act and ordered that the corporation immediately start keeping proper and appropriate minutes of all board meetings, and also that the corporation make a concerted, honest, and good faith effort to generate a record for all board meetings that took place since September 2019, which is a period of three years before the date of this decision, which was in October 2022. In making this order, the tribunal emphasized the importance of a condo corporation's duty to keep adequate records of board meetings. While the tribunal recognized the practical difficulties in ordering the three years worth of board meeting minutes be created, it found that it would not be appropriate for the tribunal to effectively condone the condo's longstanding disregard for the fundamental duty to keep board meeting minutes. Now on the issue of the record of notices of leases under Section 83 of the Act, the tribunal found that while PCC 426 did provide Mr. Sidhu with a list of units indicating which units within the condo were owner-occupied versus tenanted, the tribunal found that the document was insufficient as it did not indicate whether any notices required under Section 83 of the Act were received with respect to those tenanted units. As such, the tribunal ordered the corporation to create the appropriate record required under Section 83 of the Act. The tribunal then went on to determine the issues of compensation as well as penalty. So with respect to the penalty, the tribunal ordered the corporation to pay a penalty of $3,000 under Section 1.44 of the Act. In doing so, the tribunal noted that PCC 426 delayed in providing Mr. Sidhu with the requested records, finding that it was not until the CAT process had already begun that the corporation produced a majority of the records that Mr. Sidhu had requested. 
And when asked why the requested records that existed were not all provided to Mr. Siju prior to this case being started, the corporation pointed to its property managers inexperienced with the CAT platform and the manager's belief that the records requested had been satisfied Records requests had been satisfied based on previously provided records and because certain records did not exist. However, the tribunal found that nearly half of the requested records did not fit into the category of records that do not exist. And of those existing records, PCC 426 admitted to providing fewer than half prior to the commencement of the proceedings. So for those reasons, the tribunal therefore refused to accept the condo's explanation, finding that it was not reasonable for the board to wash its hands of its duties by abdicating them to its manager, as the corporation's board of directors is the party responsible for satisfying records requests and is accountable for failing to ensure that the manager is adequately equipped, informed, and instructed to properly fulfill the request. In setting out its reasons for ordering the penalty, the tribunal also emphasized the condo's failure to fulfill its statutory obligation to maintain board minutes. One quote that I found particularly interesting was that uh, the, the tribunal stated that PCC 426 failure to maintain minutes introduces uncertainty as to the authority of the condo's transactions and affairs impacting fundamental rights of unit owners to have access to a record of the condominium's key decisions, including decisions related to budgets, enforcement actions, banking arrangements, and contracts for services. The lack of board meeting minutes cannot be considered either acceptable or reasonable. As previously mentioned, PCC 426 did take the position that the minutes did not exist because the corporation did not maintain minutes for its board meetings. The tribunal found that this answer, while probably a complete statement of the facts, also constitutes evidence of what seems to be a long-standing, unashamed, and unmitigated disregard for a very important and fundamental statutory duty resulting in an effective refusal to provide the requested records to the applicant. Contrary to the respondent's submissions, this certainly appears to be willful, high-handed, intransigent, or egregious, and should attract a substantial penalty. On the issue of compensation, the tribunal awarded Mr. Siju with $200 for his tribunal fees. However, the tribunal refused to award any compensation for pain and suffering that was requested by the owner, finding that this was outside the scope of the tribunal's jurisdiction. Similarly, the tribunal refused to award Mr. Siju any compensation for personal expenses, finding no basis for that amount claimed. With respect to Mr. Siju's claim for legal expenses, the tribunal also refused to award this amount, noting that this case did not include any kind of extraordinary circumstances that would normally give rise to such a reimbursement as required under the tribunal's rules. But beyond this, the tribunal went further to find that due to the corporation's conduct in this matter, it was apparent that PCC 426 directors required uh, what the tribunal found as a refresher of the mandatory training courses provided by the Condominium Authority of Ontario. So the tribunal ordered each current board member to take or to retake the CAO director training. There are a few takeaways from this case, but ultimately in our view, the overall message the tribunal is sending in this decision is a strong reminder for condominium corporation directors to be aware of and properly carry out their statutory duties as representatives of the corporation. In particular, when it comes to records, condominium corporation boards have a duty to ensure the corporation's records are properly maintained and that requests for records are responded to in a timely manner. So that's all for me, Nancy. Back to you.
Fantastic, Emily. Thank you. And we've definitely seen a couple of situations where directors have been ordered to retake the course. So it's an interesting remedy that the CAT is applying. Okay, last but not least, of course, we're going to turn to our last speaker today, Victoria. And as we were alluding to earlier, there is interesting jurisdictional issues when it comes to the CAT and various tribunals. Christy spoke a little bit too about the jurisdiction of the CAT to deal with human rights tribunal issues. So now Vic is going to take us through some of that exact interplay as it relates to the landlord tenant board tribunal jurisdiction. So Vic, over to you. Thank you, Nancy. Good afternoon, everyone. I hope everyone's keeping warm. So the decision that I'm going to speak to today is FCC 6 v. Macaulay. This decision is important because the court was asked to address the issue of concurrent proceedings before the Superior Court and the Landlord and Tenant Board aka the LTB, regarding the eviction of a tenant of a non-compliant tenant from a condominium unit. In this case, the tenant had continuously failed to comply with the provisions of the Condominium Act and the condominium's governing documents by screaming and yelling obscenities, banging on doors, damaging the unit, threatening physical harm, and exposing herself. As a result of this non-compliant behavior, the landlord owner had started various LTB applications pursuant to the Residential Tenancies Act, seeking to evict the tenant. Unfortunately, none of the landlord's LTB applications produced any meaningful outcome. Because of this, and because the tenant's non-compliant behavior remained problematic for other residents within the condominium community, the Condominium Corporation started a court application pursuant to Section 134 of the Condominium Act against the tenant and the landlord owner seeking a compliance order and, if necessary, an eviction of the tenant. At the hearing of the condominium's court application, the tenant argued that the application should be stayed or put on hold because the landlord had ongoing LTB applications in which in which it was also seeking to evict the tenant. On this specific issue, the court determined that the condominium's court application should not be stayed or put on hold. The court confirmed that the condominium corporation was not a party to the proceedings at the LTB and did not have much, if any, control over how the LTB applications proceeded or their outcome. While the court noted the concern of having parallel proceedings before different tribunals seeking the same relief, it determined that the Condominium Corporation had its own obligations and rights under the Condominium Act, which are separate and distinct from the landlord's obligations and rights under the Residential Tenancies Act. And so overall, the court confirmed that a condominium corporation is not required to await a landlord's efforts to evict a tenant by way of LTB application before the condominium corporation can pursue its own legal proceeding. Now, I wanted to note in this particular case, the condominium corporation had provided the landlord with reasonable opportunity to pursue her LTB applications seeking to evict the noncompliant tenant. In our view, unless there are exceptional circumstances, it makes good sense for condominium corporations to take a similar approach when dealing with a non-compliant tenant. Allowing the landlord owner to first seek an eviction through the LTB can sometimes entirely resolve the matter without the condominium corporation having to incur significant legal costs to pursue its own legal proceeding. And so... 
in our view, a condominium corporation is not legally obligated to await the landlord's enforcement efforts. But if the landlord is willing and able to take effective enforcement steps against a non-compliant tenant, and if the condominium corporation decides not to await the outcome of the efforts, there is a risk that the landlord might be able to avoid claim for costs by the condominium corporation in the condominium corporation's own legal proceeding to evict the non-compliant tenant. This will, of course, depend on the specific facts of any given case, including the seriousness and urgency of the tenant's non-compliant behavior. So overall, this case helps to confirm the separate and distinct enforcement rights of a condominium corporation and that of landlords. With respect to the final outcome of this case, the court the court ultimately found in favor of the condominium corporation, who was represented by our firm, and had held that the tenant had breached the provisions of the Condominium Act and the condominium's governing documents, and later on ultimately granted an order evicting the non-compliant tenant from the condominium unit. So that caps off my summary of this case, Nance. Over to you. Fantastic, Victoria. And Victoria is being very humble. In fact, it was represented by Vic, and she did an outstanding job on that case. Uh, Stay tuned for one of our upcoming condo crunches. We're going to talk a little bit more about enforcement because there are definitely new and unique ways that we can work with the CAT and the Superior Court when we're obtaining enforcement orders and moving forward with non-compliant tenants or other non-compliance issues. So stay tuned for a future condo crunch on that particular topic. In the meantime, we're thanking everybody so much for being here today. And if you missed any of our short cases, if you're a little late to join us or if you had to leave early, not to worry, we will be putting this onto a podcast as we always do. So keep watch on your email and we'll announce when the podcast is available for your listening pleasure, whether you're driving to a meeting or hold up in your house during a snowstorm. It's great listening. So again, thank you so much, everybody, for attending. We look forward to seeing you at our February condo crunch, which is currently scheduled for February 23rd. Be safe. Be well, and we'll see you really soon. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Conopedia is brought to you by Davidson Hu Allen, a boutique condominium law firm servicing Eastern Ontario. You can find more about our firm on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, or on our website at davidsonconolaw.ca. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended to provide legal opinion or advice, which cannot be given without knowing the facts of a specific situation. Use of this podcast does not establish a solicitor and client relationship. The intro and outro music is provided by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com.